Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. We've been uh, in this journey for the last few weeks in the book of Ephesians, and we're studying through uh, the book of Ephesians together. If you um, are just here for the first time, uh, welcome here. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And if you want to catch up on anything that we've been talking about, you can just listen to all of the messages on our website, mp.church. You can go on... um, iTunes podcasts and all that other fun stuff, but you can catch up on where we've been. We've actually been for a few weeks in just the first verse of Ephesians, and today uh, we're still in that verse, but we're going we're gonna to kind of land the plane on verse 1 and move on to verse 2, and if everybody's lucky, uh, we'll be done this by 2030. Uh, so <laughs> I might be uh, in a cane. I might have a cane and a walker by the time we're done this, but... Um, no, we're, we're, we're just taking our time because so often we just gloss over things in the Bible that have actually great significance and meaning. And the Bible wasn't written to be an academic book. It wasn't written in academic language, in the original language. It wasn't written to people who were philosophers and scholars. It was written by real people. We're going to be talking through the book of Ephesians written by a man named Paul who was a tent maker slash evangelist. He was a guy anchored in sort of the real world. He was a real person. And uh, the Bible is written. It's a compilation of 66 books written over hundreds and uh, over a thousand years by real people expressing, expressing the 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 confrontation of God in their lives and in the world around them. And so oftentimes when we read it, we have this sort of academic um, sort of lens that we put on, and, and that's really helpful sometimes. But often we read it and we just gloss over things without understanding the story, the humanity, the context that's underneath of it. And the first verse in Ephesians is one of those ones that often we just kind of gloss over and we say, well, this is a standard greeting from Paul and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But we actually need to see underneath, and what we're going to talk about today is that even in this first sentence of Paul's to the church in Ephesians in Ephesus, there is this undercurrent of what his worldview is, his belief in what it means to follow Jesus, what the, the role and the mission of the churches in the world, and how we can actually live out the purposes and the will of God in our life. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about some of those topics. We talked about um, this idea that that God is not afraid of confrontation and that the first confrontation, the first place of confrontation is he wants to confront us internally. He wants to confront our identity. He wants to confront who we believe we are. He wants to confront who we believe he is. He wants to confront what we believe he's called us to do. God wants to confront things in our life to bring uh, clarity and purpose and focus into our life. 
We saw that as Paul just opens this letter and says, look, this is who I am. I'm this guy who was a terrorist and a religious fundamentalist turned Jesus follower, and now I'm this guy called an apostle sent by the will of God. Something massive has been confronted in my life. And then we discovered last week that not only does God want to confront what you believe and who you are, he wants to confront your will. He wants to confront what you desire. What are the desires of your heart? And I kind of said something last week that may have taken you off guard, but it's true. It's still true this week. <laughs> Sometimes that doesn't always happen, but um, that the Bible never tells you and I to trust our heart. The Bible never instructs us to follow the desires of our heart. Actually, conversely, it says that our heart is deceitful above everything else, that it's wicked, it's filled with violence and anger and hatred and lust and revenge and bitterness and unforgiveness and the list goes on and on. And it says that our desires, that our heart, actually what God wants to do is for our heart and our desires to be yielded to him. That his will for our life is that we would actually desire what he desires and that our heart would go through a transformation. Today we're gonna finish Ephesians 1 verse 1, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. The page is getting worn out in my Bible. Specifically, it's, you know how when you turn somewhere, it just seems to just turn there automatically now. We're going to finish this, uh, this verse. So he started, this is a letter from Paul chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus. Your version may see, uh, say to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. In this statement, we see this high and, and grand vision of Paul's of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be the church. In this statement, Paul is summing up in this statement his view, his belief, his doctrine of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be the body of Christ in the world. In this one little statement, this is how he expresses what our life should actually look like. We're just going to take a little bit to unpack this here. It's important for us to note that Paul is writing uh, in Greek, and he's writing to a largely Gentile audience, which just means they weren't Jewish. He was writing um, to the people in um, Asia Minor at the time, which is uh, now Turkey. And he addresses them, and he says to the faithful, to the saints, to the holy people of Christ Jesus. He calls himself first an apostle of Christ Jesus. And what's really interesting to note there is in that language, when he was writing in the original Greek language, he did not use uh, the specific words that would say Jesus is the particular Messiah of the Israelite nation. He used words that were actually all encompassing of Jesus. Christ means anointed one. So Christ is not his last name. It's not Jesus Christ, Christ is my last name. Christ actually means anointed one. And Jesus means God saves. And as Paul is writing to these people in Ephesus 
who have this pluralistic worldview, who serve many gods and have many idols and visit many temples and offer many sacrifices to a little bit of everything. He's saying, look, there's a difference between this man, Jesus, that I'm about to talk to you about and tell you about. And when Paul is writing that, the, the, um, the actual presupposition there, and even in how he places Christ before Jesus, is to express that Jesus is not just the Messiah of the Jewish people, that he's actually the anointed one of God over every other God, over every other idol, over every other ruler and authority, that Jesus is above everything. And so right out of the gate, Paul storms in with this idea that just fractures the atmosphere. And we have the same problem today because what Paul is suggesting is so radical to them, it's about as unthinkable as what I'm about to say today, that Jesus is the only way, the exclusive way to heaven. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, you have all your other gods. Great, they're just idols. They're just bronze and wood. These are just temples made by people's hands. But there is someone who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's anointed by God to be over every other small g God. And Paul is making this statement of exclusion. And it would have been as offensive for them back then as it is maybe for you right now. If you are here and you're not really Um, you know, part of a church or come from a Christian background, that statement might be offensive to you. It's offensive in our culture to say to somebody, to suggest to them that there may be only one way to heaven. We live in this pluralistic culture that says, you know what, all roads lead to heaven. It's what Oprah says. (laughs) And she's always not right. She might be surprised by that, but um, Paul is saying, look, I want to confront what you believe about God. I want to confront what you specifically believe about Jesus. And listen, we're not going to kind of go down this huge, long rabbit trail, but I just want to lay out for you there that every world religion is exclusive in its beliefs. Christianity is not the only belief system that is exclusive, that claims sort of uh, the right way to heaven. Islam, Buddhism, Sikhism, all of these other religions claim to have an exclusive road and pathway to heaven. Christianity is not unique, and even those who reject the idea that there is one way One is true and one is false. Even people that categorically reject that and say, no, every way leads to heaven are actually being exclusive in rejecting everybody else. So in your desire to be inclusive and in your desire to be good Canadians and to say, you know what, you just do you and I'll do me. You believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. We're actually being exclusive. We're rejecting every other idea. Even atheism is exclusive. Atheism rejects every notion and concept of God. It says that that is not valid, that that is not truth, and that is not the way to live. And so although we don't want to maybe confront it, Paul is right out of the gate confronting this idea in this culture that he's writing to, that he's living in. He's just suggesting to them 
Guys, there is somebody who holds the keys of life and death. And it's not all roads that lead to heaven. It's not choose your own adventure. Remember those books when, you know, that was like when I was in grade school. I loved those because I hated reading. And, but I had, a, I had a horrible problem with those choose your own adventure books, right? You, you sit there on the page where it's like, okay, what am I going to do next? I have these two choices. And then you him and haw over the two choices that you have or the three choices. And you pick one and you read the first paragraph and you're like, no, 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 I don't want that one. So you go back a couple pages and go, hey, what about this one? I'm going to go to the next page. I had this horrible problem of choosing one and then getting a few steps or pages into it and then backpedaling because I didn't like the outcome of where it was going. And oftentimes, that's what we find with our faith life. It's like we, we choose and we don't want to choose. So we just kind of throw the gates open and say everything's okay. Everything's good. And Paul contrast that with this statement that there is one. He's called the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus made this statement about himself. Jesus claimed to be God and to be the way for us to enter eternal life. No other prophet or religious leader, founder of a religion, Muhammad never claimed to be God. Buddha never claimed to be God. Jesus stands alone in history as the only one daft enough. I don't know why I said that. I'm not British. <laughs> daft enough. Righto, righto. All right. So anyway, my wife is rolling her eyes right now. We just watched like a British crime series on Netflix. So maybe that's it. He was Scottish, though. It's not the same. Anyway. All right. So I don't even remember what I was talking about. But Jesus made... Uh, this exclusive claim of himself. He's the only one to do it. And Paul is backing him up and Paul is saying, look, to follow Jesus means to understand, to reconcile with the tension of what it means if you're wrong and what it means for those who reject Jesus to be wrong. We have to actually live with this and wrestle with this tension. When Paul says Christ Jesus, he's saying, look, there is an exclusive way to God. That this person, Jesus, has authority over every other God. All that stuff that you've been mucking around with, that you've been kind of playing around with on the side, it doesn't have power to transform and change you. But there's one person who does. For Paul, when he says the phrase, and he says it, so often in this book, we're going to read it over and over again. This little phrase, in Christ, means actually that we live from heaven down. We're going to talk about this a little bit more as we move on today. This is why, as a church, our core, our baseline, our core conviction and belief, the thing that I would tell anybody I walk by on the street is Jesus can change your life. That he is the only one that can actually affect transformation and change in your life. Not just changing behaviors, not just helping you with your fad diet, and not just helping you do more good stuff, but Jesus can fundamentally change and transform your heart. It's why we believe that so deeply. 
I want you guys to just throw up that slide on there because it's, this is the, the basis of everything we believe as a church. The reason we gather together every week is not so that we can hear each other sing and listen to a guy talk for a little while. It's actually because we believe that in the presence of Jesus, the person of Jesus, there's life change and transformation. That he not only wants to change how you act, he wants to change your destiny. He wants to change eternity for you. He wants to transform you in a powerful way. Our challenge to you and my challenge to myself is to dare you to allow him to try. If you've been in church for 20 or 30 years, if you've been what we would say as a Christian for a long time, this is equally the challenge for you. Is Jesus changing your life this week? What's he doing in you? What's he stirring in you? How's he leading you? If you are here and you're not from a church background and you're not even sure what you believe, our challenge is the same. I dare you. I dare you to open your heart up to Jesus and allow him to change and transform you, to allow him to work in your character and what you believe and how you act and how you talk and how you live. This is the Jesus that Paul was preaching and said, this is the guy that I'm an apostle for. And he stands above everyone else and everything else. We see in scripture that just momentary encounters with Jesus were enough to transform and change people's lives. I want you to turn with me to the book of Mark, second book of the New Testament, chapter five. It's a story of Jesus. It's a powerful story. Jesus and his disciples have hopped in a boat. They're traveling from their home area, their territory, across the lake. And they go to this region called the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Just ponder that for a minute. How broken and bound up, how ruined by sin and the demonic do you need to be to spend your life in nakedness, running in the graveyard and screaming and cutting yourself. What kind of suffering that guy would have experienced in his life? completely isolated from civilization, no authority or control in his own life, unable to even kind of work himself out of where he was, completely pressed down, crushed, destroyed. Without hope, 
when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. I love this. Jesus doesn't even say anything. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? <laughs> Get that? This, these, we'll find out, these demonic spirits instantly recognize who Jesus is. They know who's standing in front of them. In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs, 2,000, 2,000 crippling demonic spirits controlling this guy's life. 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside and into the lake and drowned in the water. Now that has baffled it baffles me and it has baffled scholars for as long as this has been written and recorded. And I don't actually know really what the full answer is, but I just, I believe that, that the point that's being made here and the reason that Mark even includes this is just to demonstrate, just in case we were unclear about it, just in case there was any confusion about it, that the purpose and work of the demonic and the devil is to kill and destroy. There's no plan B. There's no uh, sort of ring of sunshine and rainbows around his activity. His heart is to kill you. His heart is to destroy your life. And this is just sort of a, I'm just going to lay it out there for you. These demonic spirits care nothing for this man or for whatever they're put into. All they want is death and destruction. The herdsmen, get this, fled to the nearby town. Yeah, no doubt. And the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Okay, get this. I want you to really key in on this. So Jesus, uh, we don't know exactly what the time frame is, but long enough to cast these demons out and for the guy to get dressed and to have a few conversations. Jesus says to him, the guy is begging him, let me come with you. You've just changed my life. I want to be beside you. I want to walk with you, Jesus. I, I don't want to leave your side. And Jesus says, no. Nope. Go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. Go home to your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and tell them. Then get this. So the man started off 
to visit. He, he didn't just go home. He went to the 10 towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. So get this guy would never be allowed to be a parking attendant in most of our churches. And yet Jesus says, you know what? Five minutes with me, 10 minutes with me, 15 minutes with me, that's enough. Now go out there and tell everyone about what I've done. There's no gestation period for you. There's no like, hey, I'm not quite ready for that. I'm not quite ready to tell people about Jesus. I don't quite know enough. I haven't studied my apologetics and I, I don't know my theory and my doctrine and my theology. No, no, no. Five minutes with Jesus and he's now going, all right, you're ready. Go. I've changed your life. Just start telling people about it. And watch what happens. So these people, these 10 cities and towns, they beg Jesus to leave them because they're afraid of him. He's turned kind of their world upside down. They beg him to go. Jesus goes and then watch this. The next chapter over in chapter six, Jesus is on his way back. He's coming back to that same area. He's crossing the lake again. And he lands in the very spot, Gennesaret. Mark six. Verse 53, after they had crossed the lake, they landed at Gennesaret. They brought the boat to shore and climbed out. The people recognized Jesus at once, and they ran throughout the whole area, carrying sick people on mats to whatever, um, on mats to whatever they heard, wherever they heard he was, wherever he went in villages, cities, or the countryside, they brought the sick out to the marketplaces. They begged him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe and all who touched him were healed. So these people who were terrified and said, just get away from us. We're not worthy of you. We don't know what's going on. After this guy is sent out on his sort of assignment from Jesus after 10 minutes with Jesus has changed the atmosphere of this whole region. Everybody now is coming to receive from Jesus the life that he gives the freedom that he brings, the healing that is found in his name. This guy was not qualified by human standards, but because he spent time in the presence of Jesus, he was equipped and filled with everything he needed. The Bible says that every day we have what we need for life and godliness from Christ. Jesus can change your life and it doesn't take 30 years of sitting in the same seat in church. It takes moments of intentionality every day. The Bible says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. If you make it an intentional purpose of your life to actually seek for and look for Jesus, he says he'll be found by you. And when he draws near, things start shaking and moving and changing and growing and and breaking off and healing and deliverance and freedom is what Jesus brings with him. It's who he is. That's why we believe he can change your life. After Jesus had left this earth, he died and rose again and then spent 40 days with his disciples and up to 500 people he left, and he left his disciples who, again, they, these people were not religious scholars. They didn't have all of the badges from Boys Brigade or Girl Guides or whatever. The, what was the girls' one? 
Pioneer girls, right. They didn't have all of the, the badges. His disciples were fishermen, ordinary people, business people. Joe Blow and the other guys. That'd be a good band name, actually. <laughs> Joe Blow and the other guys. That's who they were. <laughs> and it says in Acts 4.13 that they had been, because of their time with Jesus, had been performing many miracles. And the religious leaders took them aside and were angry with them because they were taking attention away from the religious system of the day. And it says in Acts 4.13 that they marveled at these uneducated men in how they were talking and what they were doing. And it says that they marveled and recognized that they'd been with Jesus. This is the core heartbeat of our church. This is why I get up every day. This is why I pray for you every single day because I believe it's not me that can change anything in your life. It's not great worship that can change anything in your life. It's the presence of Jesus that actually brings change and transformation and that's why we do what we do. Everything in this church is geared to as in the best of our ability to walk with you together into the presence of Jesus. Watch what happens. We're going to jump to Acts 19. Remember in Acts 19, this is actually the story of Paul in his third missionary journey in Ephesus. In Ephesus, Acts 19. We read these first few verses, but we're going to read them again. Verse 1 to 6. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast, where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, he asked. They replied, the baptism of John. Paul said John's baptism called for repentance from sin. John's baptism was a religious observation of repentance. It was a baptism uh, of the old covenant. It was a baptism of works. It was a baptism of being a good Christian person. It was a baptism of coming to God every day and saying, you know, I'm sorry for this and I'm sorry for that. Forgive me for this, forgive me for that. And Paul says, look, you've got part of the story I'm not going to discredit that, but there's actually more to the story than just being a good moral person. And there's more to the story than just attending church every week. And there's more to the story than just kind of serving in your community and doing the best you can with what you have. Paul said John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. So Paul is drawing a contrast here and he's saying, look, you haven't actually met Jesus yet. Jesus can change your life. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There are about 12 men in all. I just want you to know we're not going to go into it today, but we believe that the Holy Spirit is active and working today. 
We believe that he speaks prophetically. We believe in the supernatural gifts of God and of the Holy Spirit. We believe that he is in you as a seal for salvation, but the Bible and Jesus and the apostles talk about different aspects and work of the Holy Spirit. Not only is he in you, there's times where he comes upon you and he works through you. That the work of the Holy Spirit is not just this one-dimensional saving grace work, although that's part of it, but that there's a whole other life. And this is what Paul is getting at. There's a whole other life when you're following Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians 1, not only is he an apostle of Christ Jesus, but he's writing to the saints or to the holy ones in Ephesus. And this is the kind of the crux of Paul's whole doctrine and worldview, his whole belief about Christianity is that what God does in you needs to be expressed through you. What God is doing in your heart can't stay there, can't become stagnant and sterile, but what God does in you must be expressed through your life. That there is a way to live, as Paul said, to live in heavenly places, seated at the right hand of the Father, currently, presently, but also walk on this earth and carry the kingdom of God with us as we do it. And this is what Paul is kind of laying out there to these people, that there's a way to live in your workplace and in your community and in your neighborhoods and in your church and in your world that not only expresses sort of your, your religious beliefs and convictions, but actually expresses the kingdom of God externally. So he says to the holy people in Ephesus, that word holy in the Greek, it's is a very complicated and complex word, but it's this combination, and Paul is actually giving it a new meaning. The, the Greek, uh, there is five different words for this idea of sanctification or holiness or set-apartness in, in the Greek language, but none of them touched on moral character. None of them touched on what was going on inside of you. So the Greeks talked about being set apart and being holy for God, but it was just, you know, we have this idol and it's religious. And we go to this temple, this place, and it's a religious place. And we do religious things, but nothing has transformed and changed our hearts. And Paul takes this word that they use and he spins it on its head and he said, look, uh, being a saint is not about what you do just, it's about what God has done in you. It's about your life and your desires, your heart actually being enmeshed with God's. It's not just actions, it's heart and action. That's why our mission at this church is to allow Jesus to work in and through us. Our heart is not just to meet here and get our kicks and our high for the week, but our heart is to actually allow Jesus to so transform us that there's no other place for it to go to move than out of us, expressed to the world around us. This is what Paul is saying. It means to live in these two places simultaneously. How do I live in this spiritual realm with Jesus, but then walk in my everyday life? And he's saying, look, it's actually what you're receiving from God in your personal devotional life actually expressing itself out of you. For us at this church, it's really simple. 
We want to challenge and call you and me and everyone around us not to just believe something, but to live for something, to live for the purposes of God. It's not good enough just to have academic knowledge of God. He wants your heart and your actions. He wants you to express it through what you do. Acts 19, 8 to 12, gives us an, a picture of what that looks like. Then when Paul went into the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So Paul has this radical life-transforming event. Actually, in Acts 9, it says, literally, his eyes were opened, he had some food, he got changed, and he started preaching. Immediately moving into action, what he's done in me must be expressed through me. What God has done in these believers in Ephesus immediately bears fruit. Some Jewish leaders became stubborn, rejecting his message, and publicly spoke against the way. So Paul left the synagogue. All right, if you don't want it, I'll go somewhere else. And he took the believers with them. They had daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He goes right into the middle of the marketplace of the city. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Verse 11, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. I want you to just stop. This is part of the expression of the kingdom of God coming out of Paul's life. Everything that God is doing in him, everything he's stirring in him, all of the transforming work in his heart is manifesting itself through God's kingdom values and purposes. 1 John 3.8 says Jesus, his mission was to come and destroy the work of the devil. So what is God interested in doing? He's interested in healing in reversing the catastrophic effects of sin in your life and my life, in, in bringing resolve and resurrection to the things that are broken and dead in our lives. What is God interested in manifesting? It's his kingdom, and Romans says his kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That word righteousness means justice. That word justice is not just social justice. That word justice is God's justice for the brokenness of sin and the destruction of evil in this world. God's righteousness is to unwind the work of the devil and create hope and life and peace and joy. That's how he manifests itself through us. It's how he wants to manifest himself through us. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched Paul's skin, were placed on the sick. They were healed of their diseases, and evil spirits were expelled. We see this model in the life of Jesus. Jesus walked in dependence and intimacy with his Father. He walked in obedience. He said, I only do what I see him doing. I only speak what I hear him speaking. He walked in intimacy with his father. He walked in obedience and he walked and expressed the authority that God had given him on the earth. The net result was that everywhere Jesus went, all around him, there was this confrontation and a clashing of kingdoms. And God's purpose and will for our lives is that we actually carry that same kingdom, heart, and authority, and power. 
that our lives don't just become this symbiotic relationship with the kingdom of darkness and with this world where no, no, nobody's feathers get ruffled ever, where there's no confrontation. His desire is that from what God is doing in us, there would be confrontation in the world around us, and that confrontation would result in people being set free, demonic bondage broken, people being healed and restored, people being saved, a spirit of conviction coming on people. This is what it means for the kingdom of God to be expressed, not just in us, but through us. We're called to not just live an isolated Christian life where we check the boxes every week, but we're called to actually bring what he's doing in us down to this earth, to live in Christ, in Ephesus, as Paul was saying, means to walk. And when Paul walked, this stuff started happening around him means that the kingdom of God is expressed in our character in the fruit of the spirit the Bible calls it that we walk in gentleness and peace joy love patience kindness goodness faithfulness all of these things it's expressed in our obedience and it's expressed in our prayer life so Paul's doctrine This is what Paul fundamentally believes. Yes, there is a problem in this world. This world, anybody can see it, is broken. Our world is broken and fractured. Your life may be broken, your family might be broken. Everywhere we look, it's just like carnage everywhere. Paul's doctrine, his theology, his belief is yes, it's broken. And everything can be summed up into one word, sin. These are the effects of sin and the work of the devil on this earth. It's not God's heart that any of this stuff is happening. Paul's belief is to acknowledge, yes, this world is broken and desperate. People are being crushed under the weight of a whole bunch of stuff and garbage and that can be expressed in the word sin. The second part of Paul's belief, so if it's broken, and if it can be expressed with the word sin, his second sort of fundamental belief for you and I and for the church at large is that the solution is Jesus. This is what he's laying out before we even get into the meat and potatoes of the book. He steps onto the shore in Ephesus, and who does he represent? Who is he an ambassador of? Not himself, not Gamaliel, the one who kind of raised him up and taught him everything he knew about the religious system and doctrine. He's not representing a people group. He's representing Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, this world is broken. There's people that are being ripped to shreds and apart. There's people suffering immeasurable nonsense and garbage and the solution is Jesus that's it full stop period end of story the solution is not religion and it's not just observance of being a good person and doing the right things and trying to be kind and being nice it's good to be nice I could be nicer that's my wife (laughs) But what he's saying is, look, this is not, this is only going to be found 
as you encounter the presence of Jesus and allow him to transform and change your life. How do we do that? If we look at the model of Jesus's life, we look at the model of Paul's life. There's three things, and these are the three things. These are the, the vision of our church. This is why we do what we do and how we do it. Number one is intimacy. Paul walked in intimacy with God. His life was changed. And the very first and most important thing in his life was his personal relationship with Jesus. Not what he knew about the Torah and about the law. It was intimacy with God. The second thing was obedience. Paul walked in obedience. It says that he was an apostle by the will of God. God had changed the will of his direction. And Paul was now following at the leadership of Jesus. And the third thing was he walked in authority. Man, Paul expressed and understood so deeply who Jesus was, who he was in Christ, that he was able to walk in authority and confront the work of the enemy in this world, confront disease, confront bondage, confront all of the distortions and twists and the, the, the mangled culture that sin has created. Paul's belief wasn't escapism. It wasn't like, I just became a Christian so I can go to heaven one day. It wasn't escapism. It wasn't, you know, I'm just waiting until the sweet by and by, until one day I'm raptured up with the king. No, his belief actually led him to engage and invest in the world and culture around him. His belief led him to get involved, to put his shoes on and get walking and experience and live out the purposes and the plan and the vision of God for his life. It was not escapism. It was actually an intentional confrontation. It was a leaning in, and that's what he invites us to. That's his, his theology of life and what it means to be called a Christian and to be called the church. It's not just sitting on the sidelines, learning more stuff. It's actually getting involved and being engaged. Thanks. Whoever did that, that was like one and a half claps. I'm, one and a half is better than none, though. <laughs> so what's the fruit in our life as we just kind of wrap this up if that's what walking with Jesus is and our vision as a church is to provoke you I I want to I get under your feathers and ruffle things up. I want to provoke you toward a deeper relationship with God. That is my number one care. Jesus said when he was asked um, what the greatest commandment was, he said the very first thing is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our vision in my heart is to get under your feathers and provoke you to spiritual revival and renewal and intimacy with God because it is only in his presence, it's only out of relationship that the next things follow. Our second desire, the second vision we have is to challenge you to hear and obey the voice of God, the Holy Spirit in your life. What happens on a daily basis in your life? Are you asking the Holy Spirit, what do you want from me today? Where do you want to lead me? What conversations do you want to lead me into? How do you want me to live? How do you want me to, to go about this decision? And the third thing, and this is where we need to teach this in the church because it's so lacking, is to understand the principles of spiritual authority. 
We have a generation or more of Christians all over the West who have no idea who they are in Christ, who God is, and how to walk in authority over sin and bondage in their own life, let alone in the world around them. The confrontation first happened with Paul in his life, then it moved on to the next ring around him, and as he was walking in obedience and intimacy and authority, God started to break open the environment all around him. God was using him powerfully. I was thinking this week, this is why we're doing the master class for prayer. Next weekend, Saturday, bringing in friends from California who teach on this and lead this. This is not, God is good, God is great, let us thank him for our food. It's not sort of, now I lay me down to sleep prayer. There's principles for prayer that dig into the spiritual realm in ways that we are just oblivious to all the time. It's not, God, help me do this. Or God, I wish you could do this and I would hope that this would be better. There's two dimensions to our prayer life. Jesus prayed this way. Paul did. All of these apostles and prophets through the Bible, they had this vertical prayer life with the Father, but then this horizontal one of authority in his name, speaking and representing what he wanted on the earth to accomplish. And that's what he's called us to. He's called us to carry what he's speaking and doing in the kingdom of heaven down to the earth and to speak it over brokenness and to speak it over bondage and to declare his will and his purposes and his word over every situation of our life. I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but I think that prayer, how you hear someone pray, is a key indicator to their maturity spiritually. Prayer, when I hear people pray, I know right away what's going on. They could be a Christian for longer than I've been alive. But prayer is a key indicator in your life for your spiritual depth and maturity. It's not a sidebar thing that some people like and others don't. Well, I'm not an intercessor or, you know, I don't do this or that. No, no, no. If you talk to Paul, if you talk to Jesus, prayer, prayer and how they talk to the Father and how they express the will of God on the earth was a key indicator to their spiritual maturity. And I'm saying this and I'm including myself in this lump. The church in North America is walking around in diapers with a bottle and we're getting our teeth kicked in while we do it. Why, why, and this is a rhetorical question, why are we so ineffective in our own lives in dealing with hurt and offense and unforgiveness and dealing with loss and tragedy and dealing with the effects of sin in our life and bondage and dealing with these crippling, crippling issues of you know, uh, sexual immorality and lust? Why are we in these cycles and bound up in these ways that we can't even escape from? Why are we bound and, and out of control with anger and, and bitterness and rage and hurt? Why are we just getting pummeled left, right, and center? It's because the church hasn't actually been teaching us how to walk in intimacy, authority, and obedience. And God is calling us, I don't even know how to do it. 
I, I, like, I don't have this magic formula, but he's calling us together as a community to set that as our true north, that life with Jesus is our true north and intimacy with him is our highest priority, his presence in our life and walking in obedience to him. And out of that fruitfulness will come authority, as the Bible says, even over the nations. Paul ends this verse. We're really going to do it. We're really going to end it. Your dreams just came true. <laughs> he ends this by saying, I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. That's a good, well, I wonder what song that was. <laughs> um, that word faithful, we talked about this last week, has two kind of connotations to it. One actually literally means to be sexually faithful to your spouse. That's literally the one half of it. And the other half is to actually be obedient and walk in the trust to actually that the way you trust God is expressed in how you live. Faithfulness is not just an intellectual idea. It's not just an internal thing. It's actually an external ex expression of how much we trust God. And what Paul is saying is, look, this whole thing, this whole Christian life, if you want to know what really matters, it's not about what you did 20 years ago. It's about what you're doing today. Are you living in Christ and where you are in the present? Or are you living in the rearview mirror from some decision you made 20 years ago that has no impact on your life today? Paul is saying to, to be in Christ and in Ephesus, to walk faithfully, is to walk in obedience today. It's actually to get off the bench, put your shoes back on, and start following what God has instructed us to do. So what do we do with all of this? Where do we go with this? It's why, as a church, it's why we do everything we do. Because we believe Jesus can change your life. We believe that he's called you to live in him and for him to work through you. I want to challenge you. If you're not involved in serving in the church, we need you. We need you because you have gifts and talents, you have anointing and calling from God on your life that needs to be expressed because people need what you have and what God is leading you into and what he's doing in your life. It's why with our kids downstairs, we don't offer babysitting service. They actually teach our kids the word of God. They worship with them. They teach them how to hear the voice of God, how to respond in obedience, how to walk out their faith. It's why we do services the way we do and why we have worship nights and why we're doing revival night this next weekend coming up because we know that we need Jesus in our life. It's why next week we're starting Alpha and we have beyond blessed because we believe that the Bible actually can teach us how to walk in intimacy, authority, and obedience. We believe that Jesus can transform every part of our life. 
It's why we have women's groups and men's groups and all of these things that are going on. It's why we're knocking walls out to make room for people to experience the life-changing presence of Jesus in their life. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately. 